Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The sound of parenthood is the sigh, so writes Maximilian Werner in his new memoir, Gravity Hill, which is about growing up, getting older, looking back, and wondering what lies ahead. A process that becomes all the more complicated and intense when parenting is involved. Werner describes his struggle growing up in suburban Utah as a non-Mormon and what it took for him, his siblings, and his friends to feel like they belonged. Bonding and separation, they indulged in each other in natural and urban landscapes and sometimes in destructive behaviors that are the native resort of outsiders, including promiscuousness and occasional violent sexual behavior, and for some, paths to death and suicide. Gravity Hill is the story of the author's descent into an eventual emergence from his dysfunction and into a newfound life. James Barilla writes of Gravity Hill, The story is not that of Terry Tempest Williams' refuge, nor is it of Amy Irvine's trespass. It's a portrait of the region, the city, the characters. Time are distinctly different, irreverent, and darkly funny. The contrast between the narrator and the Mormon culture of the region is something I'd not seen described before. And Maximilian Werner writes on his uh, Amazon biography that uh, he uh, is, uh, when he's not fly fishing on one of his favorite western waters or elbow deep in garden dirt, he's at home riding in the classroom, teaching and trying to help humans live up to their potential as a species. Maximilian Werner, author of the award-winning essay collection Black River Dreams and the novel Crooked Creek, additionally. And he joins us uh, from Salt Lake City. Maximilian Werner, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate being here. We appreciate you uh, taking time to to be with us. Uh, so you you've you've had a collection of I think uh, fly fishing essays and a yeah. novel, A Crooked Creek. Um, it, it's it, it's a big step to plunge into memoir, isn't it? What uh, yeah. what what made this the right time? Well, I think that I mean most of my most of my books on on uh, you know some level or other are about my life. I mean, even Crooked Creek with the novel is, you know, largely based upon many experiences I've had, and, and the, in some cases the experiences that uh, other people I know have had. And so, um, I mean, if, if I, when I look at it that way, it, it wasn't uh, such a leap. But, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I had reached the point where uh, I was sort of through with writing about fly fishing for the time being and had, you know, experimented with the novel and and got a lot of pleasure from that, but um, sort of ran out of projects, and I decided that I would, you know, sit down for a year and tell the truth about my life, and and that's what gave rise to Gravity Hill. And uh, telling the truth about your life, I guess you, you, any writer, especially writing this close to home, so to speak, has to decide what, you know, how how truthful you're, you're going to be, how close to home you're going to be, and I, I suppose that's a that's the decision you can make for yourself, but you're also making that for the people around you, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of been a tough thing to uh, reconcile, especially now that the book has appeared. Um, you know, admittedly, before the book was published, this was something that, you know, my, my publisher, the University of Utah Press, and I discussed, and, you know, we both were very concerned about, you know, protecting the, you know, the, the identities of the innocent or the guilty, as, as the case may sometimes have been, but... Um, you know, I, you know, I just kind of got to the point where, you know, I started thinking about how much of my life is tied up in the lives of other people, and I know that this answer may not be satisfying to anyone who is not a writer, but, uh, you know, everything is material, and, um, you know, I, I think given that, you know, my job as a writer is going to be to try to, you know, 
represent those people as truthfully and as honestly as I possibly can. I mean, I mean, keeping in mind, of course, that you know these are people I love, and I love many of them still. So, you know, my 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 goal was never to wound anyone. It was simply to talk about um, you know that time in my life and and to wonder and speculate about how it might have shaped the life I now have. Your authors know at the beginning of the book you call this a work of creative nonfiction. Is that because you've changed some names? Well, you know, the, the, the creative nonfiction genre, as I think anyone who writes it or teaches it will tell you, is very versatile, and there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what exactly the creative portion of that, that designation means versus the nonfiction portion. And so when I, when I think of the creative part of it, I think of, you know, all those different strategies that are available to me as a writer in, from all genres, including, you know, fiction and poetry and, and you know, in some cases, playwriting, if, if that were one in, one's interest. But the nonfiction part is, I think, more static in the sense that, you know, so long as you're not going into it with the intention to deceive, which, you know, I, 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 there have been famous examples of that in recent years, uh, you know, that, you know, it's, um, so long as you're not going in, into it with the attention of deceiving that, you know, it's, uh, you know, everything is pretty much fair game in terms of material. So, And I suppose the creative part of it uh, as well could be you, you sort of collapse time in the memoir. You're, you're going back and forth and, and, and sort of going backwards. You, you begin with your, your current life as with your family and, and then sort of proceed backwards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the ways that, that I try to enrich the book is by... I mean, as you noted, even though I'm writing it from my current perspective as a as a father or a, you know a new father, um, you know there are several opportunities that I found over the course of writing to you know to look back, but then also to look in the future as well. And uh, um, there there are several passages in there where I I find myself sort of speculating about you know there, there's one passage in particular where I, I'm walking across campus after work and I I see this uh, student this young student this young woman and and it, and I and I think for a moment that I'm seeing my daughter, you know, who who at that time was I think two years old, but I was seeing her in the future, and you know, so there's just just this, these sort of different things that happen over the course of writing a book, and and I've tried to allow as many of those in as possible, so as to enrich it, and and then also to give the present moment a greater intensity. I noticed that, uh, and and you describe in your book a, a pretty wild youth. Um, I noticed, uh, then I was struck by reading your mother's review of your book on Amazon. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. She gives it a five-star. She calls it a, a, a great, great work. I don't know if she learned things from, from the book. Yeah. Yeah, I think she did. I think, you know, she was, you know, I've, I've talked with her a lot about this, and I know she's listening right now, so hi, Mom. But, um, you know, we talked a lot about the book um, after it came out, and, um you know, there are there are certain parts of it that were were disappointing to her, but you know, I think as she noted in her, as she rightly noted in her review, you know, these are these are not the same people. You know, these people are not the same people I was writing about, and and that in some ways that goes back to my earlier answer about material. And so when I'm writing about myself or when I'm writing about you know my mother or my friends, I mean, you know, these are this is 25, 30 years ago that I'm talking about, and and these people just aren't those people anymore. Most of them. So I think that was one of the things that kind of at least I rationalized and sort of gave myself permission to write about them because of that. And she agrees with you. You you open the book with with this phrase, the the sound of parenthood is the sigh. Yeah. And this yeah, is this yeah. is sort of sort of touching on um, I don't know an impetus for for the book. It seems like your you know your your new parenthood, and then, and then that yeah. uh, your thoughts proceed from there. 
Yeah, that's a loaded sigh. I mean, it really is. Um, you know, there's a lot wrapped up in that gesture. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I try to get at in the book is that, um, you know, the, the process, at least for me, of becoming a father was very, um, very difficult. It's a very disturbing, you know, a new experience for me, one, you know, that I, you know, wasn't prepared for and one that when I looked around in the culture, didn't really see many examples of. And so I felt, you know, utterly... Uh, alone and despondent a lot of the time, especially during those early years. And then, you know, of course, as time passed, and and after I'd written the book and my children had gotten older, uh, you know, things improved. I mean, it's, it never goes away, this feeling that I'm talking about, at least not for me as a father, but, but I've learned how to manage it uh, better than uh, I had in those early days. I wonder, I was reading on your... Uh... Your website, uh, blogs, and this is a dispatch from Tori. Uh-huh. And you say, um, I must confess that for as much as I love and need contact with wild places, I'm also afraid of them. You go on to say yeah. that, that, that that you've been examining your fear. This was last year. Uh-huh. And that's a strain that through through this book. You're afraid for your children. You're, you're afraid, you know, a lot of us feel fear, but uh, you've, sounds like you're examining your fear and what it means. Yeah, I mean, there were many years there where, I mean, the, the fear that I'm talking about in the wilderness is is a different in the sense that it's more, you know, it's 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 more temporary in the sense that I, I don't spend as much time in the wilderness as I'd like. And um, but but yeah, you're right. I mean, it comes from it comes from the same place. And um, you know, for many for many years there, I was, uh, you know, I, I'm not even really sure why this is. Maybe it's just you know, sort of my sensitivity as a person or. You know, who knows what uh, the origin of that fear is, but, you know, I, I sort of became debilitated by it. And, um, and so, you know, at, at that point, I, I, you know, as my, as my wife, you know, reminded me very gently as to, uh, you know, I needed to change that and do, to do something about it. And, and for me, it was really, I don't, I mean, this is going to sound like an oversimplification, but it was just a matter really of sort of changing my worldview and how I looked at you know, my, my life and, and my responses to it that allowed me to kind of get out of that funk. And, and that's true of whether I'm talking about being in wilderness or, you know, dealing with the implications of being a father. Hmm. And I wonder if that is, is, is bound up in a part of being very present in the moment. It, it seems, I, I get the impression reading this book that you're, you are very present in the moment. Well, I'd like to think I am, but I don't know if my wife would agree. Um, you know, I, I think she, you know, she sometimes worries that I'm a little bit remote, you know. And I mean, I'm certainly here a lot of the time, but um, you know, I, I, I think, I think what it is for me more is that I feel what I feel very intensely, and um, and 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 so while it might seem as though that's, you know, the, the uh, you know, how I am for most of my life, I think it's mostly just you know, in those moments where, you know, things that occurred. I mean, you know, basically the book is a, is a litany of those moments, you know, mm-hmm. these, you know, whether it's, you know, these experiences that I'm having with my children or, you know, revisiting my past or speculating about the future or, you know, it's basically just a, a collection of those kinds of experiences that are, that are seen as, uh, Wallace Stevens would say, with the hottest fire of sight. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where I uh, would get that impression that these moments are strung together. We all have them, but but they're mixed up in many other moments, I, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if I could have you read uh, a page and a half from the book. This is page, um, reading this correctly, page eight. Okay. 
Uh, and this is, we could set this up, your, the, the book opens w- with a crisis your wife and you were having with your, with your daughter Greer. Uh, you don't know if she's sick, she's just crying uh, a lot, you don't know what's wrong. Uh, so I wonder if yeah. you could start the, the top of the page there, I kissed her cheek, and then, then go over to that, that first paragraph on the, on the next page. Okay. I kissed her hot cheek and smelled her skin. My nose told me she was mine. Then I described the climbing flame, the column of colors. Soon the match burned out, sending a thread of smoke spiraling into the dark room. Where did the flame go? I asked, lifting up Greer's pajamas to reveal her cream-white tummy. Is it under here? No. Greer looked annoyed and in no mood to play. I took the hint. Here it is. I slid open the matchbox and took out another match and struck it. I'd been monitoring Kim's conversation in the other room, listening not so much to the words, but to the urgency with which they were spoken. When she rejoined us in the living room, Greer and I were standing in front of the big picture window. I had lit a candle, and Greer and I were watching it flicker. How is she doing? Kim asked. When Greer heard Kim's voice, she turned and leaned toward the sound. She's doing better, I said, handing her to Kim. What did the doctor say? Kim sat on the couch and cradled Greer as she nursed and soon fell back to sleep. She thinks it was a night terror. I blew out the candle, placed it on the mantel, and then sat down next to Kim. Night terror? I whispered as I smoothed back Greer's damp shock of hair. Yes. Greer stirred at the sound of our voices, and soon our conversation ended. But later I would learn that night terrors are nonspecific, disembodied fears. Because they cannot be named, they cannot be confronted or destroyed, and that is what makes them so terrifying. I looked outside and scanned the neighborhood. I focused on the large bush beneath my neighbor's tree, perhaps because each time I see it in the dark, I think it's someone standing out there watching us. I keep getting it wrong. But then I started to wonder what a watcher would see. What would he think is going on in here, in this house of terror and flame and night? Despite my questionings, the world out there seemed no less distant. My neighbor's windows were filled with the same dark as me and the trees and the sky. Beneath them were luminous blue lawns of snow. It was all so frightening and so beautiful, the world outside my dry mouth, my walls, and my sleeping daughter. This is a domestic scene that uh, plays out, uh, you know, in houses all over, but uh, there's there's high drama here as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was a pretty, um, you know, I remember that evening very vividly, and and, uh, you know, I mean, I think most new parents will tell you that, I mean, they're very overly concerned about the well-being of their children. And, you know, and, um, and so it's a very intense time, I think, for parents. And, uh, and that night was certainly an example of that for, for Kim and I. I wonder if we'd uh, get into talking a little bit about the uh, Mormon-non-Mormon divide. So some of this, uh, you know, you sort of delineate your history of your youth in, in the memoir sort of along that, that divide. And, uh, you, you came from, uh, at least reading your, your mother's review, uh, came from Maine to Utah, and it, it seemed, sounded like you, you liked it, your life in Maine. Yeah, well, actually, um, I loved it. Um, but we, I was actually born in Idaho Falls, and then Good. when I was about 11 months old, my father got a job in northern Maine, and so we, we re- relocated there. But, you know, my mom and her people are all from Idaho, and... Uh, so that's where um, at least some of the Mormon influence comes up in the book, and, and I allude to that, I think, in a couple sections there yeah. in the book. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic upbringing. It was, it was kind of bizarre as well, because, you know, at that age, and, you know, and because of my parents' um, you know, decisions about how to 
uh, you know, address the issue of religion in our house, which was basically not to address it. Um, you know, growing up in Maine was kind of a strange experience because, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, and you know, in small towns, are known for their knowledge of uh, of their community members. Um, you know, my mo- my mother was Mormon, but you know, my father at that time was, I think, he considered himself, you know, agnostic or atheist or something. But you know, once once word of, uh, of that distinction gets out, you know, the community sort of tends to treat you differently. And uh, and you know, I was always sort of aware of that as a child growing up in Maine. And then, of course, when uh, we moved to to Utah, I mean, then it sort of just uh, you know, that feeling, those feelings just sort of were exacerbated. And a uh, very definite divide, and, and, and you, I guess you would you would bond with with others who feel that separation as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I think wherever you go, you, you find, you know, like-minded people, and, uh, you know, my, my experience was no different than that, and but, you know, I, having said that, I, I would also point out that, you know, I knew a lot of Mormon kids back then, too, and I try to make that clear in the book, and and uh, a lot of those kids were struggling as well, and um, you know, and they were you know, experimenting in many of the ways that, that that I was experimenting. And you know, they they may have ultimately found their way back to the church, or they may have left it. But but you know, there was just a lot of diversity in terms of you know what the Mormon culture represented back then. And and, uh, and I would I would not want the reader to think that I'm arguing otherwise. Mm-hmm. And you use the word culture, and I think that's that's apropos. It's it you know it's religion. Also, culture, and it's a cultural divide, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and it's and it's one that you know can be you know more or less benign or troubling depending on the day. And and I was thinking uh, this morning about you know some experiences that my own children have had uh, recently, and and uh, my 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 uh, wife's cousin, she has these little kids, and they're not Mormons, but they go to another another church, and uh, you know, there's this day when I guess they went to play over at their cousin's house. My kids went over to play at their cousin's house, and one of their little cousins, and keep in mind, this kid's like, you know, seven years old. And he starts, you know, carrying on, uh, asking my son, you know, you know, don't you go to, don't you believe in God, and, and you know, you're going to go to hell, and, and all this stuff. And, and I thought, you know, <laughs> this is this is madness, you know. It's not difficult enough to be a, you know, a seven- or eight-year-old, you know, growing up in this world and then has to be compounded with, you know, threats of hell. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, when things like that happen, I think it's very unfortunate. But, um, you know, I know there's a lot of good, too, that, that comes out of religion. And, and you know, and I try to I try to be aware of that as well. Uh, there's a review of your book. Uh, ben Fulton, I think, wrote it to Salt Lake Tribune. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, you know, a very nice review and uh, interview with you. Uh, then you go to the comments. And there, there's a lot of comments, and that's what people have latched onto, and it's uh, sort of a back and forth discussion. Sometimes heated, sometimes not between Mormons, non Mormons. It's about that divide. Yeah, yeah, I was sort of surprised by that. I mean, because in a lot of ways, um, you know, and I, you know, most of those folks can see that they haven't yet read the book, and and I and I think that what many of them have done, and, and you know, in varying degrees, is sort of latch on to you know what. They think is important, um, and and I understand that. But in many ways, it sort of distorts what the book is really about. I mean, you know, the book the book does address the divide, but um, you know, it addresses a lot of other things as well. And uh, and in, and not only that, but it's not it's not really hostile toward you know the the Mormon religion. It's just sort of saying, here, look at this. You know, this is this is what it was like. And um, 
and I don't, I don't know that there's any real judgment in that. I mean, I'm just sort of trying to point out some differences, and you know, and I think, you know, the reader is going to make of that what they will, depending on their experience. You know, I, I'm guessing that that you know they'll they'll uh, you know have different reactions depending on you know where they fell within you know that divide. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm, uh, I'll get into asking how how the divide manifests itself with uh, among you and your friends, and and get back into some of the other themes. Of the book, uh, one of the very interesting themes is is death and impermanence, and and uh, and this uh, sort of um, fluidity of time. Some some very inter- interesting themes. And by the way, uh, you and your family, I think, still live next to the cemetery. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, yeah, we so do. you you have some interesting uh, scenes in the cemetery, but but just on this this theme, I, I wonder, and I don't know if you and I have this experience enough to to tell this, but I wonder if there'd be the the same manifestations of this divide, how it plays out uh, if you were in a uh, predominantly Catholic neighborhood or predominantly Baptist neighborhood. Uh, well, um, I mean, when you say how it plays out, are you referring to something specific, or uh, no? Just uh, just how you know maybe that what you experienced growing up as a you know, so-called Gentile in, in, in Mormon terms... country. Oh, okay. I mean, you're talking about in terms of my attitudes towards death. Uh, no, that uh, I was saying we we're going to get into that a little later, but uh, just oh, uh, just on on this divide in general. Um, you know, probably not. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I, I haven't studied, I haven't studied this, you know, I mean, my experience, you know, as it's recounted in the book is, is based on, you know, pretty much a lifelong, um, you know, interaction with, with the LDS Church and with members of the LDS Church, you know, which, as I noted, are as varied as the Church, you know, I mean, as there are people in the Church. But, um, you know, I'm guessing that, that, you know, this is something that, you know, other religions share as well, um, and that, you know, had I, even if I had, you know, been brought up in a Catholic, uh, you know, community, that, you know, probably many of these same things might have, uh, many of them, certainly not all, I mean, I know there are differences between those two different faiths, but, um, you know, I, I, I have Catholic friends, and, um, you know, and we talk about these different things, and I think there are some important, you know, similarities, and, uh, but, but there are also some important differences. So, you know, I'm guessing probably not, probably not too much. Hmm. Uh, and this is, a, as some reviewers have uh, have written, this is uh, unique in some ways. I, I think there, you know, there have been some memoirists who have uh, touched on some of these issues, but uh, maybe not uh, growing up in suburban Salt Lake City with the kind of your experience in the city and, and also out... Uh, in some of the wilder places around as well. We're going to be yeah. keep, uh, continuing this conversation with Maximilian Werner, uh, whose new book is a memoir, Gravity Hill. And we're going to take a brief break back with Maximilian Mer- Werner after this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is writer Maximilian Werner. He's the author of uh, several previous books, and his newest book is uh, Gravity Hill, a memoir. Uh, it is about uh, growing up, getting older, looking back, and wondering what lies ahead. Process becomes all the more complicated and intense when parenting is involved. And he details his struggles growing up in suburban Utah as a non-Mormon, what it took for him and his friends to feel like they belonged. Um, it's the story of his descent into eventual, uh, into and eventual emergence from his dysfunction into a newfound life. And uh, Maximilian Werner is uh, going to be appearing at the King's English Bookshop. That's on uh, Friday, May 10th, 7 p.m., for a reading and signing at the King's English, an event uh, that you could attend. Maximilian Werner, uh, I believe you teach writing at the University of Utah, right? 
Yes, that's correct. Um, and, in fact, uh, I'd like to have you read another page and a half here. This is uh, page uh, 98. Okay. Uh, and going uh, all the way through 99. Uh, you made reference to this earlier, where you yeah. see in this young woman walking across campus, I assume this is University of Utah, um, the, the future of your, you know, potential future of your daughter. And then going on and talking about some of this... Uh, the fluidity of time. I uh, should uh, preface this by saying you you had a uh, sort of a, a, a vision or a, you imagined, um, this is earlier in the book, uh, remembering some, some events, you had your children there in your memories. And then you realized that they couldn't possibly have been there. This was, this was before that they were born. Yeah. A- and then we're going the other direction with this that I'm going to have you, have you read. Once, okay. they're, once they're born, you said they're always there. Yeah, it's a memorable moment for me. So do you want me to read it now? Uh, Yes. Okay. After work, I walk across campus and into the January wind with my head down. Last autumn's leaves and a torn page of math notes lay trapped and shining beneath ice. When I look up, I see a young woman, and I think I am seeing my two-year-old daughter, Greer, 16 years from now. I wonder if she knows the beauty and the danger inside her and inside young men and in the men who do not reveal themselves. I worry about the strength of their hands and their smiles like glass hidden by the summer grass, and about all the deadly and blazing animals leaping aghast out of the moonless night in places too far from here, where the world is a lightless betrayal and goes by unnoticed. I want to take that girl by the arm and sit her down and make her promise she'll take care for as long as I am here and long after. Over dinner, I tell Kim I saw Greer as a teenager and what it did to me, and she tells me she does the same thing all the time. I want to believe we are sharing and feeling this together, but I can't be sure. I say, if I can just make it to 70, the kids will be in their 30s, and by then, they should be all right. I feel like I have it figured out, like I will have done my job and fulfilled my obligations. But then I look at Kim, and she is spinning her fork in the noodles and looking at her plate. That's not so much the issue for me. I think about how much of their lives I'm going to miss, she said. I'm afraid she is right. Now here is this new void created by contemplating my children's parentless lives. I get up and carry our plates to the sink. When I return, I stand behind Kim and put my hands on her shoulders. The hard ridges of her collarbones feel unfamiliar, and sadness and fear creep into my heart. I want to say something about the intersection of time and desire and how we chose this. But then Wilder asks us what we're talking about, and as is our habit, at the exact same moment, Kim and I say nothing. Becoming a parent is a complicated experience. Such strangeness and emptiness in the fact that Kim and I will be erased from the earth except for our children's memories, which too will fade and conclude by their own erasure. Impermanence makes the blood flutter. Life widens from its beginning until its end. Everything else is disillusion. I am unsettled by the paradox promised by the birth of each child. I have this image of Kim and our kids lying in bed. Greer nurses and Wilder describes a yucky dream. Kim pushes the hair off his forehead, which is hot because he has been crying. They don't know it, but I am on the floor beside the bed. I am out of sight and in another world. I see myself searching my pockets for matches. When I don't find anything, I feel relieved because it means that I don't have to go through with this and that I can't. And I am just about to rise and climb into bed when Kim's arm falls out of the sheets. 
and in her hand is a book of matches. The window was open. Above the wind, we hear the dark songs of robins and ruined apples falling on the roof. Maximilian Werner reading from his new memoir, Gravity Hill. By the way, you can join this conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. Maximilian Werner, memoir, Growing Up in uh, Suburban Salt Lake City. Um, You go on over the page to say that you just wanted to hold someone's head in in your hands and say, I'm grateful. I don't want this to end. Uh, An interesting phrase there, impermanence makes the blood flutter. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of get at this. I mean, it's such an obvious, you know, awareness on some level that, yeah, we'd all die. And, and if I die, then my kids die. But, you know, you, when you're, when you're, as a parent, you're so wrapped up in, in trying to ensure that your children, um, you know, secure themselves in the world that, you know, the, the notion that they too will die is, you know, it, it just creates this really strange tension. And, I, you know, it's it's no wonder that, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But, you know, at that moment in the book, I'm thinking about it, and it, and it really, you know, puts me in a spot. So, mm. And we, I guess we have this desire to, you know, to be remembered, to to, to not have this impermanence? I'm sorry, what, what's your question? Uh, I, I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, you seem to, to be, in, at least in the, these passages, you seem to be accepting this, that... Uh, you know, maybe maybe not going quietly, but but at a certain point, uh, your children will die. Their memories of you will will be gone. You'll be gone. Yeah, I mean, it's um, you know, I've often wondered. You know, I I think that you know, and this might be the the appeal that you know religious scripts have for many folks is that you know, in many ways, they they address this problem. You know, this problem of our mortality and. Uh, but you know, for me, I don't, I don't have that script. That's not the story that I'm telling, and uh, and you know, and that has implications. It has consequences in the same way that, you know, that uh, that other other scripts have implications and consequences. And uh, so, you know, one of the things that I've had to deal with, you know, recently is, you know, just, just what I view as the facts. And the fact is, is that, um, you know, this so far as we know, this is it, and uh, I need to behave accordingly. Mm. Uh, tell me about the title, Gravity Hill. Well, the, uh, as you'll know, uh, as you know, of having having read the book um, and having, I'm guessing, having been a long time Utah resident, have you? Or yes, but or? I've I've never been to this hill. Oh, okay. Well, um, back in the day that I'm talking about, you know, early '80s, um, up to I'm not sure when they when they closed it, but Gravity Hill. I mean, there are lots of Gravity Hills, first of all, throughout the world. Um, and it's you know it's basically a place where an optical illusion occurs, and it appears as though even while you should be rolling down, you end up rolling up. And and Utah has one of these gravity hills, and it's just north of the capital, uh, on that horseshoe-shaped road there um, near City Creek. And um, when I was growing up, uh, you know at, at at that time you could you could drive that road both directions. Now they've they've got it closed off so that you can only go from east to west, but. At that time, you could drive it both ways, and, and so to amuse ourselves, we would go up there and, you know, park in a certain spot and, and uh, you know, and experience the the, uh, the illusion. But it was also a place where we, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, drinking and, and you know, getting involved in other, you know, various shenanigans and, uh, you know, spent a lot of our time. So, I mean, and as I think Ben, ben Fulton uh and Jeff Wichert of 15 Bytes noted in his review, it, it really becomes sort of the, the, the 
primary metaphor for the book. Yeah, there, and there's some, uh, there's a lot of connotations. It uh, you know it can be, imagine vertigo inducing, uh, confusing <laughs> to experience uh-huh. that. I've never experienced it myself. That, right. that particular experience on on a gravity hill. Yeah, it's not that it's not that dramatic. But oh, okay. But, but when you but when you uh, you know when you tie that to the other things we were doing, that's maybe where the confusing ah the, okay the other stuff yeah <laughs> come from. So. Yeah, you, you had me all excited to go experience this, but you're saying <laughs> yeah, it's not well, all that great. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> no, you'd have to break the law to do it. I think yeah. in this case. But, okay. But all right. Maybe that's okay. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll refrain. <laughs> uh, we're talking with uh, Maximilian Werner who uh, teaches writing at the University of Utah. He's the author of several books, including the latest uh, memoir, Gravity Hill. And uh, he'll be uh, appearing at the King's English Bookshop on May 10th, 7 p.m., for a reading and and book signing. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. Throughout all this, and... and, uh, you know, it's it's a wonder you survived. I I think your youth and some of your compatriots didn't, right? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, no. they're drugs and and adventures and, and a lot of sex. Um, uh, and in part of this, you you like to escape to, uh, to to nature. You you say that you preferred wilderness to any other place, especially when you felt vulnerable. Yeah, which was a lot, <laughs> which was mm-hmm. often. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I think that that is partly illustrative of in, like, the divide in many ways, because, you know, I remember, I distinctly remember, you know, I was at Alta High School for a little while uh, before I got kicked out and then went to Valley, and, I mean, Valley High School saved my life, but, um, you know, at, at that time, I, I distinctly remember that, you know, Alta, uh, and, and, and rightly so, had a lot of activities, you know, designed for its students, and, and but you know these were you know like dances and and stomps and you know these sorts of things and of course the athletics you know the, the sports games and and all the things that I hope my kids do you know and and don't you know I hope they don't follow in my footsteps but um but so as an alternative to those things uh, you know we would you know spend time in the mountains and particularly up at Bell Canyon Reservoir as I know in the book and and uh, you know that's really where where you know life happened for us you know whether it was there or you know i remember missing many a days of school to go snowboarding and i mean i was a terrible student i mean it's it's embarrassing i mean but by the same token i would really like to talk with the students at valley high school at some point just to to tell them to say look you know you can do this uh because if you know if i can do it coming out of the the life that i lived um then they can do it as well but mm. Yeah, so that, I think that was just part, partly illustrative of that divide, the, the, you know, the, the recourse that we, the solace that we took in wilderness. So how did you, how did you survive? What, uh, what, what pulled you through? Well, you know, I, I think there's, there's multiple answers to that question. I think that the first was that, um, you know, I've never really liked chemicals all that much, and uh and so that was the first part of it. I mean, I, I mean, I was addicted to cigarettes. I quit, you know, 15 years ago, thankfully. But, but other than that, I never really felt. I never got addicted to anything. And and I think that's partly because of my, my, you know, my personality. But I think it's also because of what I saw it do to the people around me. And um, and then I also think it's because of you know the people in my life. You know, in particular, my mother, who, you know, um, you know, supported me in every way that she could. And. Um, and has always been a great support to me. And, and then, of course, later meeting my wife, Kim, who, you know, is the straightest person you're ever going to meet in your lifetime. 
So, you know, I was very lucky in a lot of ways. A lot of different variables came together to help rescue me from that, uh, from that dysfunction. But, you know, I, um, you know, I don't think that's, that hasn't been true for, for a lot of the people that I grew up with. You know, as you noted, some of them have, have been killed and, um, and then, you know, and some of them I think are still trying to live that life. And uh, it, it doesn't appear easy. I wonder if I could have you read another another passage, some very lyrical passages uh, here. This is page twenty six. Okay. Um, and and midway through the through the page, the first full paragraph there, Tosser was a messed up kid. Yeah. And, and then over to the, the through the next to last paragraph on the next page. Okay. Yeah. Tosser was a messed up kid, but he had his reasons. His older sister, a pretty girl with perfect teeth and Sarah Fawcett style hair overdosed on aspirin. Her story is strangely typical, stupid, and tragic, in that way that only a teenage love story can be. After her parents refused to let her go to the lake with her boyfriend, I'm guessing she gobbled the pills to get back at them and because she honestly believed her life was over. But then she realized her mistake, got scared, and told her parents, who rushed her to the emergency room. Doctors looked her over, listened to her heart, did not joke about it being broken, ran some tests, and sent her home. She hadn't been home for 10 minutes when she became violently ill. Again, her parents rushed her to the hospital. She died in the parking lot. True story. I've known it since I was 15. Over the last 25 years, I've spent a few idle moments wondering about the dead and what else they might have become had their circumstances or luck been different. To this day, I'll pass them on the road. Just last week, I saw Kim's grandmother, Lida. She sat so low beneath the steering wheel I could barely see her but she clearly had somewhere to go. The dead I know seem busy and a little worried, like they are always watching a blue sky and preparing for a storm they know is coming. The dead are like us in that they cannot stop moving if they want to survive. Rarely are the dead ever just that. We see them in the night sky and in our dreams and in the living faces of other people. And in this complicated way, the dead live on and have lives of their own. I was 20 the year the 18-year-old son of my mother's childhood friend chose a balmy day to hike into the rolling and heavily flowered foothills above Salt Lake City and put a bullet through his head. When a neighbor heard the news, she confided to my mother's friend that she had seen the boy walking up the driveway and that he had smiled at her even though in reality he was already dead. When and where suicides shoot themselves matters because it tells everyone who loved them how badly they wanted to die. Those who kill themselves after making love on a summer night or lying in the shade of a cherry tree or standing within view of the ocean know this better than anyone. But Tosser's sister's death was not that kind. There was nothing remotely beautiful about her death, or if there was, it escapes me. I saw her once in life and the other times were in photographs. Back then, I would have never guessed she was entirely gone by how her memory had settled like dust in the rooms and in the words that were spoken in the rooms with the doors closed. Maximilian Werner reading from Gravity Hill, his new memoir. Uh, and there are several scenes like this in, in which you're saying that the, the dead are still with us. Yeah. It could, it could be a memory, it could be, uh, you know, something something triggers us and, and, and the... Very, very present. I, I wonder if, if, if you think that's more so with you because of what you went through in your youth, or, or is it that way with most of us? I think it's probably a pretty universal experience. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the narrative that we build around those experiences may differ, you know, from person to person and, and culture to culture. But I think that 
probably, you know, most people um, have these similar sorts of things. And in, in a lot of ways, you know, the, you know, the word you used, the impetus for the book, was just sort of an acknowledgement of that fact, and, and uh, not just with respect to this subject, but with respect to all the subjects that I mentioned in the book. I, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone in terms of, you know, this sort of estranged feeling that I had when I became a father, and, and I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm not alone in that, you know, as a, as a teen growing up in this town, I did whatever I could to, you know, to escape myself, and, you know, and um, I know there are other kids like that, and um, I know there are other teenagers in the Valley who are, you know, probably dealing with these, these struggles in, in their own ways, but, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that, that there's a, there a lot of folks out there that are, that are like me and, and my siblings in the sense that, you know, they, they, they found these less than uh, perhaps constructive ways of dealing with, with uh, adversary, or a, a, adversity, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are several scenes in the book, uh, some of them very touching, where you imagine yourself going back to talk to yourself as a young man or talk to uh, your children, you know, in, in it kind of a, a time-bending way. You said you'd like to go back to Valley High and, and, and speak, and I wonder what, uh, what what are some of those lessons that, that you would say? Uh, that, I, that I've learned, you mean, from yeah. having gone mm-hmm. through this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the most the most important is that you know, and this is gonna. I don't. I don't want to send the wrong message with this message, but uh, I, I, I just, if we're being honest, I think that you know the the key thing is that that while it's true that what you do you know during those years in your life are it's very important, um, you know, in the sense that you know if, if I had done better in high school, I think I would have had more choices, you know, later on. I mean, I, I don't think there's any denying that. I think that I could have done things better. But I think it's also true, and this is the point I'm trying to make, is that is that, that is not a determinant by any means. You know, I mean, how you are in high school or what you did or who you knew or, you know, uh, these, these are, you know, the grades you got. These are None of these things are, are you know, are necessary indicators of, of how you're going to do in your life. And so I, I think that, you know, part of the reason why I wrote Gravity Hill is to provide this sort of alternative script you know, uh, for, for people who, uh, whose experience is, is not accounted for by, you know, mainstream culture. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's the biggest reason. And then the other reason is to learn, or, or the, other, the other lesson, rather, is to learn to try to learn to love life on its own terms, you know. Um, I think that was one of the great, you know, sort of mistakes that I made in my life was that, you know, I, I just, I was just constantly trying to check out and, uh, and I think that if I had found more constructive ways of dealing with life on its own terms and loving it, that, you know, maybe I'd be a different uh, adult now. But, uh, you know, I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a, a good life. Um, and, and your children sound adorable. Yeah, uh, they're very sweet. Yeah. Um, do you have, since, since the memoir has come out, uh, perhaps, uh, have you had old friends from those old days um, contact you? Any reaction from, from them? Well, yeah, incidentally, um, I've, I've, uh, I've had reconnected with, with several of them. And, um, and uh, I mean, I think the consensus is from those I've heard that, you know, I, I mean, I got a couple of the facts wrong. Like, so, for instance, uh, I, I wrote about this one girl that I knew who I named as Lark Rodriguez, and, and, and uh, I, I mistakenly uh, said that she was Catholic when, in fact, she was Mormon. Um, but, you know, with the exception of those sorts of things, I mean, uh, you know, she, she was very pleased with it, and she thought it was beautiful. And, and my, my uh, male friends, uh, you know, uh, have enjoyed the book, and my, my siblings, of course, have loved it. And so, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of positive 
response to it. I, I'm sure that, you know, there are other people in the book that may not be as happy with my portrayal of them, but, um, you know, this is just how they occurred to me at the time of writing, and, and like I said, I'm sure that they're they're different people now, and, and I'm a different person now, and, uh, and you know, if, if possible, not to take it personally. Mm-hmm. So in, in a way, this you know memoir in general is is a snapshot. You say you're a different person. We 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 do become different people throughout our lives. Yeah, thankfully, you know, I, I just can't imagine. Um, you know, if I had kept going down that road, I just can't imagine what would have uh, would have come of me. And you know, and there are lots of different ways of living this life. You know, and, and I'm not saying that my way is the way, but um, you know, I think the key, especially when children are involved, is to try to stay in the world as long as we can. And uh, and you know certain ways or approaches of going about that I think are more conducive to that end than others. And uh, you know clearly a life that is you know uh, saturated in, in drug use and alcohol and promiscuity and you know high risk behavior just is not uh, is not one of those ways. So we just have a couple minutes left, and I wonder uh, if, if you have a passage from the book you'd like to to read. Oh uh, yeah, I do actually. I have. Uh, you know, as, as we've noted, um, one of the ways I've tried to make the book richer and uh, more enjoyable f- for the reader is to, you know, to go back and forth between, you know, passages. And, and uh, in, in this passage that I'm going to share with you now is uh, one about my uh, experience growing up in, in uh, Caribou, Maine. So it starts, uh, Winter and spring storms had come and gone in Maine. And at the end of the wet season, my mother, father, and us kids moved to another town where nothing really happened in the open. Farmers drove tractors down the street, and teenagers peeled their tires in the Burger Boy parking lot, and that was something. Once in a while, the gray bird of death would soar through town and announce someone had died, maybe an old guy fixing the roof after a rain. Mindful of the black clouds far down the sky, he raises his hammer, and the lightning strikes it. Out of the corner of his eye, he watches the crystal flame leap to his head, where it burns a tiny hole and then travels the roads of his bones and blows his boot soles clean off. Down at the diner, folks sit next to their hats and purses, eat pancakes and eggs, and drink their coffee. They reason one's got to be smarter than the lightning or whatever did the killing and suddenly made life feel broken, and not necessarily in a bad way. Country life in Aroostook County got to be a monotonous, so my brother, sister, and I were pretty excited and a little afraid when a young man on a motorcycle lost his leg when he was sideswiped by a car. Actually, he didn't lose his leg. It was laying there next to him. Bad luck is hard to take because it explains a lot, but it has no use for anything it claims. I knew the man that hit him. His name was Duff. I went to school with his son, and he told me it was hard to see how the accident had affected his dad because he would smile sometimes and was still standing. Without invitation, he reminded me of how two summers before, a fire had destroyed my family's barn, but not a lick of flame had touched the adjoining house. I didn't know what to think because this same kid had also told me his older brother had kooky eyes and talked as if he had to spit because he had goofed off and accidentally driven a pencil into his ear. My brother's sister and I watched the ambulance come screaming up the road, and as it passed, everyone's hair went flying. We then walked a half mile to have a look. Duff and the motorcyclist were gone, but we saw the wreckage. The motorcycle lay smoking in the road. In a state of shock, the man didn't realize he was minus one leg and tried to run across the grass without it, and we judged he did not get far. Then Duff must have sat him down on the gutter because there was a pool of arterial blood that had seeped into the storm drain. 
The pool had started to congeal around the edges, but the center was still wet and alive in the evening sunlight, and it became a dark mirror in which I I saw two faces. My advice is to pass the closed doors found in dreams and in a pool of a stranger's blood. My advice is to keep walking. Maximilian Werner, reading from his new memoir, Gravity Hill. Uh, It's just out from University of Utah Press, and he'll be giving a reading and a book signing uh, at the King's English Bookshop. That's on May 10th at 7 p.m. Maximilian Werner, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to turn to uh, politics. My guest is Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute. His latest book makes the case for the free enterprise system. He says it's the uh, system which gives us the, the, the most chance to pursue happiness. It's the fairest system and the, does the most good for the vulnerable. We'll talk about that with uh, Arthur Brooks tomorrow on the program. Uh, for producers Danny Hayes and Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.